Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. He is out. Look at, look at this. Flint is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome back, John PL show right here on EMTR Radio Network. Of course, check out johnpelly.com. I got all my interviews, my blog, and of course all the past shows that I've done. Just a reminder, we keep the program interactive. Tweet at me at John underscore Pelly. That's J O H N underscore P I E L L I. I check all the tweets there and all the uh, replays of the show right here on EMTR Radio Network. We've had some very good interaction back and forth. Uh, we're going to start the hour off by playing an interview I recorded while I was down in Florida. I was over in Jacksonville. We talked about Desi Relaford, who was part of the program in the first hour. But uh, I also got a chance in Jacksonville to stop by and meet up with Milt Wilcox, who was a former Major League pitcher. Right-hand pitcher, pitched uh, 16 seasons in the major leagues, 1970 through 1986 with the Reds, Indians, Cubs, Detroit Tigers, and Seattle Mariners. And uh, Wilcox uh, ended up pitching in a World Series in his first year, only pitched in five games in a regular season for the Cincinnati Reds and ended up pitching in a World Series against the Baltimore Orioles, uh, a series, of course, the Orioles ended up winning but ends up rejuvenating his career under Sparky Anderson, who was his manager with the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, he wasn't a big fan of Sparky Anderson, the way he handled the pitchers, the way he didn't really have a lot of faith in the younger pitchers. And he ends up rejuvenating himself as a veteran with the Detroit Tigers, having some very good seasons in 78 through 84. Of course, 84 uh, culminates his run in Detroit with a World Series championship. He won 17 games for the Detroit Tigers, ends up pitching in a World Series, leading them to a victory over the San Diego Padres. And Milt nowadays uh, you know, trains dogs, and he has a lot of dog shows and stuff like that. So, you know, he's actually, uh, you know, he's, he's, do, he's done a pretty good job after his career has ended. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League pitcher Milt Wilcox, a guy who won 119 games over his Major League career and ends up winning the World Series with the Detroit Tigers in 1984.
And this is John Fialli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Mill Wilcox. Mill, thanks for having a couple minutes. No problem, John. Anytime. All right, let's uh, start to talk a little bit about your uh, your coming up because uh, you know when you came up through the Reds organization, you obviously got a taste of success right away. You had a chance to pitch in a postseason in 1970. Tell us a little bit about coming up and then getting an experience in the postseason so early. Well, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, when you're 18, 19 years old and you're you got a chance to meet guys like Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Lee May, and you get up to the big leagues. And first year you pitch, the first year you get to pitch against Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente. You know, you're pretty well. It's it's a dream. You know, Absolutely. because those are guys I used to pitch against in my front yard. You know, as a little kid going against the wall, I used to strike those guys out. So it was it was pretty amazing getting to pitch against those guys and coming up with an organization like Cincinnati and uh, with a manager like Sparky Anderson. It was all a dream and. Uh, of course, the dream burst pretty quick after that when I got traded to Cleveland Indians. So, uh, and it was, you know, it was kind of an up and down uh, career after that with some uh, arm arm problems and surgeries and stuff like that. But you know, I still uh, finished almost 16 years in the big leagues. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, when you ended up missing some time and not being at your best, was it mostly because of injuries after you left Cincinnati? Yeah, what happened was back in uh, 72, uh, when I got traded to Cleveland, I hurt my shoulder. And it was back in those days, you know, back in those days when you had a bad shoulder, you didn't tell anybody. Yeah. You just, you, t- you take quarters on shots and you go back out and try to pitch. And that's what I tried to do for about three years. And uh, the shoulders kept getting worse and worse. And uh, then again, in 1975, I went back down the minor leagues. I was with the Cubs that year. Went back down the minor leagues. And I met this doctor in Oklahoma City called uh, John Donahue. And uh, John O'Donohue was, uh, he was the, like the grandfather, uh, or he was the father of pitching uh, the way the guys used to, you know, like, um, who's the guy now? Uh, Job, Job and, yeah. and Kerwin and those guys, he was before those guys. Okay. And the way they learned a lot of things off of him, and I was lucky he was in Oklahoma City, he got me to do some different types of exercises. My shoulder started coming back around, not to the 95-mile-hour-plus fastball I had when I was young, but to the you know, 89, 90 with not much pain in my shoulder. So I learned how to pitch again and got a chance with the Detroit Tigers and spent 10 years there. What did you think was your biggest adjustment you had to make? Because, you know, you talk about when you came up, you were throwing very hard. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you're the same pitcher. You just don't throw as hard. How did you manage to, to get hitters out? Because I'm sure when you first came up, you're like, hey, if I don't have this fastball, I, I may not be the same pitcher. Well, I think going to uh, winter ball a lot in Venezuela, I did that. I uh, played in Puerto Rico and Venezuela and Dominican in the winter, which is their summer. And so I learned to go down there, and they got great players down there. And so I learned to go down there and, and get guys out down there. And I think I learned the transition between being a thrower and a pitcher. I actually turned into a pitcher there, uh, almost like Frank Tanana did when Frank Tanana had to re, re, uh, relearn how to uh, pitch. And, uh, you know, that's what happened. And just to survive, uh, stay in, in the major leagues, you have to do that. Now, once again, John Fiali here with Mill Wilcox. Now, you know, throughout the part of the 70s, when you're, you're bouncing around team to team, maybe not pitching your best, how how frustrating was that to you? Because you know you're you're in you know what you think or what should be the prime of your career, 
um, getting a chance here and there, but but not maybe not performing at your your absolute best. How were you able to handle going through that, and what's going through your mind during this time? Well, basically, you just want to stay in the big leagues. You know, you know what you know what the minor leagues is, and the minor leagues you don't want to be there. It's, you don't make any money. The bus trips are long, and there was no flying from team from city to city. Um, but you know the competition level. I wanted to. You know, I knew I could get the Freddie Lens out and the Jim Rice's out if I could get in there and get a chance. And getting a second or third chance was kind of tough to do back in those days. Yeah. And uh, I was just lucky enough. I uh, I pitched a game against. I was in Wichita AAA with the Cubs, and I pitched a game in Denver. Um, and a couple of the um, scouts in the stands. So I had a really good game, and my ball was popping a little bit, I think, because I was pitching in Denver. And uh, the Tigers were interested in me and made a trade for me, and I went over to Evansville and, and pitched over the rest of the year, and, and the next year I got called over to the Tigers. Yeah, absolutely. And, then, you know, of course, you end up, you know, a couple of years in, you got reunited with Sparky Anderson. That must have felt me to feel pretty good, you know, a guy that, you know, managed you in Cincinnati is now your manager again. Well, to a certain extent, but th that's one of the reasons that I left Cincinnati was because oh, of Sparky. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You know, Sparky, Sparky never, if you really look at Sparky's history, he never got along real well with young players. It was always the uh, older players, the established players. He liked those guys. Uh, Don Gullett and I were with the Cincinnati Reds about the same time, and I think he liked Don Gullett a little bit more. Don could throw a little bit harder than me. I think I could pitch a little bit better than him at, when we were both 19, 20 years old. But um, uh, for some reason, Sparky and I just didn't see eye to eye, and, and that's why they traded me. They traded me back uh, after the 71 season for Ted Ulander, who was just okay. a reserve yeah. outfielder, basically. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a great chance. I went over to Cleveland, started pitching really well. And then in that year, I did hurt my shoulder. I went from seven and one. I think I was six and one that year to seven and fourteen that same year. So it really, it really took a nosedive for me the rest of that year. Yeah. Yeah. So let me actually re-ask my question in a different way. Then was uh, you know you, you're with Detroit, you're starting to establish yourself again. In comes Sparky Anderson. Are you like, oh, oh shit? You know, <laughs> am I gonna have another experience? Basically those same words. Basically those same words. Well, I actually, I was, you know, I was going to the ballpark. And I, was, I can still remember I was in the in the car with my wife, and I go, uh oh, there goes there goes my career with the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. And even though I was only 29 years old at the time, I just had I think 17 complete games the year before. Yeah. And uh, Sparky came over, and sure enough, the first thing he did was take me out of the starting rotation, put me in the bullpen. And uh, him and I, we we went head to head a little bit, and I actually. First time I've ever done it, I've gone over the player's head, or the coach's head, even the general manager's head, and I went to the press and just made a demand that I wanted to get traded. Or I, Actually, what I wanted to do is I said, play me or trade me. And I, I really wanted to stay there. And, and right after that, the real quick story is, right after that, Sparky calls me in his office and says, oh, so you're going to go to the press and talk about me, huh? And I said, you and I had a deal. You're not bringing me back to start like you said I would. I had to do something. He goes, okay, you're going to pitch the first game after the uh, All-Star game. You're going to pitch that game. Happened to be against the White Sox, who just killed me in an outing that yeah. I pitched against them. And I shut them out one nothing. And I pitched for Sparky for the rest of the time I was with him. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I'd be ready to put up, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. You ended up backing it up, and of course, uh, you know, uh, in 1983. You end up nearly throwing a perfect game. Right. A game, obviously, against, uh, you know, against the White Sox. 
Jerry Harrison ends up breaking it up with two outs in the ninth inning. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what did, what did you think allowed you to get in that position? What, what, what made that performance so special for you to retire the first 26? Well, I think that luck a lot. You know, you, I have a good fielding. I mean, I had Alan Trammell at shortstop. First guy I up hit a ball between my legs, and I thought it was a, I thought it was a ground ball base hit up right up the middle, and Trammell was in front of it, filling out by a, you know, a long ways. And um, so, you know, you, you, get your, you try to prepare yourself the best you can. I knew the White Sox pretty well. I had pretty good stuff. It was early in the year. My shoulder wasn't bothering me yet. And uh, still pretty strong, and made some good pitches on them, and uh, had a good defense behind me. And we scored a bunch. You know, we had five or six runs, whatever it was. So it makes it a little bit easier to pitch that way. But uh, I made a bad pitch to Jerry Harrison. Uh, Lance uh, Parrish called a split finger, and I shook him off. I wanted to jam him with a fastball in, which I had great success with that. And Jerry Harrison never really hit me at all. I mean, he was a he was a really good pinch hitter, but he, he always knew he was a first pitch fastball hitter. But I had such a good fastball, and I was running it in on the left-handers. I thought I could do that. Yeah. And uh, the ball sailed out of the plate, and he got a base hit. I mean, I never looked at that pitch. My wife actually got a tape uh, about four years ago, three years ago. She got a tape of that game and re-ran it. I'd never gone back to look at that or whatever, because I and I didn't realize how close that ball was hit to Lou Whitaker. And it was, you know, from here to a foot and a half away, two feet away from it, but he stalled it and he hit it really good. So, you know, you, you do the best you can. I had, I had, I was a one-hitter. I had six one-hitters in my career. I never had a no-hitter in the, in the major leagues, but I had six one-hitters. And, you know, if, if you get lucky here and there, you're going to pitch a no-hitter, and I just didn't get that lucky. Now, you think the, the stuff you had in that, in that near-perfect game, was that the best stuff you had in regards to those one-hitters? Were there other times that maybe you had, you thought you pitched better, just uh, I, I hit a different certain Oh, time yeah, there's, there's plenty of times I pitched a lot better. I think the playoff game in 84 when I uh, I shut out um, uh, Kansas City Royals one to nothing. I beat them one nothing in the third game of the playoffs. I think I had really good stuff that game. And, um, I mean, my, my I had a good pop and fast. I, I pitched against one time against them. Uh, Boston Red Sox had 13 strikeouts one day, and that's when they had Freddie Land, Jim Rice, and some of those guys. So you know, I I could you know, and there was there was times that I could really pitch as well as anybody, but I think my sho- my uh, shoulder injury was the was the part that kind of kept me down in my career. Of course, you end up being once again John Pialli here with Mill Wilcox. 1984, obviously you're with the Tigers team that runs off that 35 and five star, the ridiculous star runs runs away with everything, ends up winning a World Series. Probably uh, something that you, you kind of felt coming for a couple of years. You see the core of the team kind of building with 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 the, with the team. You end up winning 17 games that year. But what stands out is the fact that. Uh, according, according to Baseball Reference, you became the first pitcher to pitch a full season in the major leagues as a starting pitcher, and not pitch a complete game that year. Mm. Was, was that was, was that something that was on your mind at all, or was that a little bit into the transition of being a pitcher? Obviously, a guy in the '70s that's, that everybody's pitching a complete game, but the '80s are becoming a time where uh, pitchers, you know, you got you got a manager in Sparky Anderson that's kind of known for pulling the pitchers within about six, seven innings. Well, I think that year, that was pretty much by design, um, because what had happened was the last three years, 81, 82, and 83, I had gone on to disable this all three of those years because of my shoulder. And so we knew, and every every year that what happened was, and a lot of people don't realize this, but every year I went on to disable this, the team took a dive. And it wasn't, you know, we'd, we'd you know, 
we, we didn't play good for those 21 days. And I I knew, and we had to, you know, we just barely lost in 83. I mean, we 81, we had the best record in the American League, but that was a split season year. And then 82, we had a really good team. And 83, we had a really good team. And in 84, I said, to, I told my son and my wife at the time I told her, I said, I'm not missing a start. Whatever it takes, I'm going to I'm gonna stay in every start. It could be the last part of my career. Yeah. And, you know, I was, you know, 34 years old. But I said, I'm not going to miss a start. I'm not going to come out. And so that year I had seven cortisone shots in my shoulder. Uh, it kept me from missing any starts. Uh, Roger Craig and Sparky Anderson was really watching me, making sure I didn't overextend myself. Uh, even into the playoff game in in '84, when I was, was I had a one nothing lead uh, after eight innings, Roger Craig came over and asked me, he says, "How do you feel?" And I said, "I feel great. You know, I feel really good because if I had pitched that ninth inning and shut him out, I probably would have been the name of the player of the of the playoffs, yeah, one yeah, nothing yeah, shutout." Yeah, absolutely. But I looked at it this way, you know, it's not that big of a deal to get individual accomplishments. If I go out there and screw the game up, yeah, we they may story. come back and win. You know, they may come back and win the whole thing. So uh, I told him, I, I saw Willie Hernandez down there, and he'd been perfect all year, and I said, just tell Willie to come on in. I, and he said, you sure? And I said, yeah, just tell Willie to come on in. Willie came in, and we got him out in the, in the bottom of the ninth and won the game. So, you know, there's there's times that, that you have to pick when you do it. And But, I, you know, with all the arm problems that I had in my career, I felt like I, I got the most out of myself. No, absolutely. I tell you what's ironic about pitching in that clinching game of the NLCS and of the FCS in 1984 is 14 years to the day mm -hmm. of you doing the same thing in 1970 with the Reds. Right. That was that was a little bit different situation. Uh, that was, I came in in relief and we were actually behind that game. We were yeah. we were down two to one and I pitched three innings against the. Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. I still remember almost that of that whole three innings, and you know I struck out uh, four. I think it was four batters right. in a row, and it was Freddie Patek, Matty Alou, Roberto Clemente, and Willie Stargell. I struck out all four of those guys in a row, held the team down for a while, and our team came back and won the game three to two. So yeah, that was that was that was pretty cool and. Of course, that was when I could still throw hard. I could, you know, I could go up against those guys and just buzz a 95-mile-hour fastball. I think it was 95. That was before radar guns, so we're not uh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, you know, all these years later, you find a different way to get headers out, man, and you do the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's just one of those things. You have to, you know, you have to do the best you can with what you have, and, um, you know, it's 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 what you do. You know, you go out and try to find stories oh, wherever cool. you can find them, and I, and I tried to get guys out, and if somebody came up with a split finger or... Uh, you know, a, a, a spitball or whatever it is, and a vast lean ball. You try those things just oh, to see if you can try. You know, and and uh, you know, I did play with Gaylord Perry for three years, so I learned a lot from Gaylord Perry also. So now, now in regards to to the spitball itself, was that was that something you felt was easy to learn? No, no, it was one, probably one of the toughest pitches. You can't control it. You just can't control it. Now, is it, is it the grip that you're able to get, or you can you can do it? It's you know, you use Vaseline on. I mean. All the you know it's like it's like hitters when they when they cork their bats or they or they use pine tar on it or they you know bone their bats or whatever. There's all sorts of ways to make the bat harder, better. I think a lot of it's phys uh, mental. You know, you think you got a, uh, a step up on a pitcher, but as a as a hitter, as a pitcher, you know you have a step up on them if you can throw a good spitter. But a spitball uh, or a grease ball is is hard pitch to learn. I tried it. 
tried it in practice, never could do it, and I stayed away from it. But a lot of people thought I threw it because I played with Gary Perry for three years, and you know he was he was probably the master of that. And they kind of psyched some hitters out too. They were kind of thinking it might have been coming when you weren't necessarily. Yeah, that's why pictures. That's why pictures always yeah. blow all over the place. Awesome. Sometimes you lick your you lick your fingers and wipe them off on your chest, and you don't let the hitters see that, and they think you're going to throw that. So it's all it's all mental a lot of it. Now, last question, Mel, in regards to the spitball. Do you think, in your opinion, was Gaylord Perry the best that you saw throw it, or was there anybody else that you could thought may, may have been able to command it a little bit better? Well, I think there was a lot of pitchers that threw it. I guess, so, you know, I just think that because of who Gaylord Perry was and his competitive spirit, I mean, the spitter wasn't his only pitch. That wasn't the pitch that got him to the major leagues or got him to the Hall of Fame. You know, he he played with different pitches just like everybody else did. You know, and there's, you know, I, I probably know 50 pitchers that, that tried to spitter. But, um, you know, when you're a competitive person like Gaylord, and that's what I learned a lot from Gaylord Perry was the competitive spirit that he had yeah. and how to challenge the hitters. He always challenged the hitters. He never gave into them. And I kind of did that in my career, too. I just didn't have the stuff that Gaylord had. <laughs> hey, listen, Mel, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you allowing me in, and uh, best of luck to you. All right, John, anytime. Great getting a chance to catch up with Mill Wilcox, of course, a very good career in the major leagues. And, of course, he's doing stuff with the dogs now, and he's got his secondary career going. But one thing I did want to touch on, and you know, we talked about it in the first hour, a little bit of a tease, is the use of relief pitchers in Major League Baseball today. We've hit a new era in the game, and there's no more complete games, as you've seen in a stat that pretty much has become an obsolete. It doesn't happen too often unless – a pitcher is going out there throwing a gem and not throwing a lot of pitches per inning, uh, there aren't too many complete games. And if you look back at the days and, you know, Tim McCarver in the first hour was talking a little bit about Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton, guys that you you knew didn't want to come out of the game and weren't going to under any circumstances. And Mill Wilcox was kind of the same way, the complete games that he pitched towards the end of his career. It kind of, uh, you know, in the mid-80s was kind of when complete games were starting to get phased out of the game a little bit. And now every Everything's all about the specialist. You got the closer, you got the eighth inning guy, and you got two or three specialists that are ready to throw from the right-hand side or the left-hand side just to simply go out there and get one hitter out. And Sparky Anderson was really one of the first managers that kind of went with the pitching change a little too often. And, of course, Tony La Russa was kind of the guy that mastered it and really had his success based off of the pitching change that he made and probably too many at certain points. But, you know, the game is set up to where left-hand pitchers are, are kind of known to have to go out there and get only one left-hand hitter out. And, you know, let's be honest, 30 years ago, nobody used the term loogie. Yeah, I mean, if, if we talked about Loogie 30 years ago, it would be somebody spitting their tobacco on your shoe or something like that. Now Loogie is something that every team needs to have, at least one left-hand pitcher that can go out there and get one hitter out. Teams have used left-handed relievers to get left-hand batters out for years, of course. But a stigma that exists that assumes that if a pitcher throws from the left-hand side, they automatically will have success getting left-hand hitters out. And if you put that rule to the test, in most cases, the left-hand pitcher will have success getting a left-hand hitter out. But I don't think it's always works out that way. If you look at, you know, make an example, opening day, the Mets bring in John Lannon to face a left-hand hitter. Here's a guy that's been a starter his whole career. He has never been that lefty specialist. But because he throws from the left-hand side, Terry Collins or any other manager that has a left-hand pitcher in their bullpen is going to assume that they're going to go out there and be able to get left-hand hitters out. It doesn't work out that way. 
If you look back at the history, some starting pitchers like Jim Cott and Rick Honeycutt pitched for years as a starter and ended up extending their career because of the lefty specialist role. On a more conventional note, guys like Brett Cecil, Brian Mattis, uh, Oliver Perez have made transitions from being a starter to a lefty specialist. So for the most part, it ends up working. But you know, left-hand pitchers have always been assumed to have that advantage because there's few that throw from that side. If you're a left-hand pitcher in Major League Baseball, you're expected to have a chance to have a long career because of this particular role. Uh, you look at some closers that have done it. Uh, guys like Jesse Orozco, Mike Stanton, Dan Plesak had a lot of success as a closer, but also it elongated their careers being a lefty specialist. But it doesn't work for all starters. Mickey Lolich lasted for just two more seasons when he was expected to pitch a little bit longer. Jimmy Key retired after 1998. He only had the lefty specialist role for a half a season. Uh, Mike Flanagan had a solid season as a loogie, followed by a very terrible one afterwards. And ask Mitch Williams what he feels about being a lefty specialist. Because as soon as he was done being a closer, his career was essentially over because he could not do that. And because of that, I think we get too bent out of shape assuming that just because a pitcher throws from the left-hand side, they're going to jump into that role. And you look at some guys that exist now in Major League Baseball. Uh, Chris Capuano is going to be on the Boston Red Sox as an extra starter, a spot starter, a long reliever. Would you expect him to go out there? And if John Farrell called on him to get, let's say, a left-hand hitter out in a big spot, would you expect him to be able to do that? Maybe he can, maybe he can't. But I don't think it could be assumed that he can. Uh, closers like Araldis Chapman and Greg Holland, who are right now at the top of their game. And, of course, we wish Araldis Chapman the best in his recovery after getting hit with that line drive and getting all those stitches in his head. But, you know, Greg Holland and Araldis Chapman, probably the two best left-handed closers in all Major League Baseball right now. Where are they going to be five years from now? Are they going to continue to dominate at that level? Are they going to be expected to go out there and still perform at the closer's role from that time? Obviously, you know that if they they digress a little bit, if maybe their velocity on their fastball isn't what it was, then maybe they can be a situational lefty. But obviously, it's not conducive to the best of their strengths. A guy you could say that had a very good career as a closer, was a left-hander, pitched his entire career as a closer, was Billy Wagner. Uh, Billy Wagner is a guy that still threw hard, even up to his last couple games with the Atlanta Braves. And if he was going to convert to that loogie role to come out there and face only one left-hand batter, I don't think he would have set himself up to have as much success as he did as a closer. And I don't think he could have elongated his career. His career would not have gone longer because he he happened to throw from the left side. Uh, Other guys, like I mentioned, like Jesse Orozco, Dan Polisak, they ended up taking that role and doing pretty good with it. But the point that I want to make here is that teams are getting left-handed relievers ready at such a young age now. You see conversions made from left-hand pitchers that have been hard throwers or maybe were starters or maybe were closers and are getting used to being that situational lefty at A-ball and at double-A. And first of all, being at that level and, and having that be really your only chance to get into the major leagues, a lot of those guys don't end up making it to the major leagues. So you got guys that end up progressing either in double A AA or triple A, whether they're starters or relievers. And a couple guys I'll make examples of uh, pitched for the New York Mets last year. One of them's Josh Edgen. Josh Edgen was originally a closer in the Mets' lower A level, moved his way up to double A, where he was having a lot of success and ended up making his major league debut with the Mets a couple of years ago. And his, his role 
up until the point that he made it to the major leagues was to just go out there and throw as hard as he can and get anybody out. Now he comes to the majors and he's expected to come in there with two guys on and Ryan Howard coming to the plate when he hasn't done it before. And not necessarily the competition, but obviously the competition is is up there when he's facing one of the top left-hand hitters in all of Major League Baseball. So you know, now he's expected to go make that jump from the minors to the majors in a role that he's never had before. And obviously you see how that's worked out. Josh Edgen's pitching in AAA right now. Maybe he's just simply having that role where he's going out there facing only left-hand hitters. That might be the best way if he wants to have a chance to have a major league career. But his chance of having a major league career facing righties and lefties is shot already. And he's barely pitched in the major leagues. Another guy that went through that last year with the New York Mets was Robert Carson. Robert Carson, the left-hand pitcher, was a starter for the majority of his minor league career. Started relieving a little bit towards the end. But when he made his major league debut, he was expected to be that same type of pitcher that's going to go out there and face just that one left-hand batter or that one or two left-hand batters. And a guy that's never done it before can't be assumed to just because he throws from the left-hand side that he can go out there and do it. I think it's good that Major League Baseball has these these, these uh, specialists. They're set to do a very good job, but it can't be assumed that every pitcher that happens to throw from the left-hand side is going to be able to uh, dominate at this role because you've seen left-hand pitchers that have a, a better chance of getting right-hand hitters out. There, there's pitchers that throw different type of pitches that are more conducive to getting a right-hand batter out, but I think baseball in general and scouts and the way it's set up, they're kind of not even looking at that. They're only looking at the arm that the pitcher throws from, and I think you know you look at how careers have been saved like guys like Jim Cott and guys like Jesse Orosco end up sticking around for a longer time than they would have if they didn't dominate in that role but you got to talk about all the younger pitchers that careers are being wasted right now because of the total stigma that's set up to a left-hand pitcher having to assume to be able to go in there and get one or two left-hand batters out. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back with Larry Jaster after this. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR.
Welcome back, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show here, and we're going to get right into an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher Larry Jaster, and Larry will always be known in the country of Canada and Montreal for, for throwing the first pitch in the history of the Montreal franchise, and of course what makes it stand out is the first pitch in Major League Baseball history thrown in the country of Canada and thrown for a Major League team playing outside of the United States. And Larry Jaster had a very good career. He, he had a couple seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals where he pitched in a World Series in 1967, of course, the year the Cardinals won. And in 1968, the year that they lost to the Detroit Tigers, he did give up a grand slam to Jim Northrup in that series. But, you know, he's a guy that stuck around a little bit, played with also the Atlanta Braves as his career dwindled down. But... He lives down in Florida as well. It was nice catching up with him at his house, and it was really nice getting a chance to speak with him. So here it is, former Major League left-hand pitcher Larry Jaster. John Pielli, and of course taking the fastball show on the road back in Florida again. And right now um, I, I have the pleasure to be speaking with a former pitcher for the Cardinals, the Expos, and the Braves. Pitched in two World Series and is known for throwing the first pitch in the history of the country of Canada in Major League Baseball, and that's Larry Jaster. Larry, thanks for having a couple minutes. You're welcome, John. Larry, going back as far as you could remember, um, was baseball something that you always loved? Was that a passion of yours from when you were a little kid? Pretty much so. I mean, my mom kept me involved in uh, in all the sports, really. I mean, whatever sport was that time of year, I pretty much did it, whether it was... Uh, Softball, which turned into baseball, uh, football, basketball, just whatever season was going on at that time, that's what I competed in, and that's the way I did it all the way through uh, grade school, junior high, and high school. I was fortunate to have scholarships in football, you know, when I did play high school baseball, so that, uh, you know, I had to make a hard choice there, but... Uh, I had one knee injury through football, so it was an easy choice when it came down to that. I, I chose baseball. Now, did you did you enjoy, as you were a kid, did you enjoy football as much as baseball? I really did. Uh, so what, what position did you play? Well, I was a quarterback and a defensive back, and uh, I guess I enjoyed the the contact part of the sport. Plus, plus I could always throw well, whether it was a at least throw hard and far anyway whether it was a football or a baseball. So uh, those two uh, things correlated a little bit. As you go as you go in through college and eventually you get signed by the Cardinals, um, was there anybody that was a mentor to you in regards to pitching that you remember? You say, hey, this guy really early on helped me out in my development and you know allowed me to eventually become a major league pitcher? Well, I had a, I had a coach in junior high. His name was Danny Smick. And uh, he was, uh, from what I understand, was a nine-letter man at the University of Michigan. Wow. And uh, he was more like a junior high coach at that time, and he directed me quite a bit. And uh, high school coaches I had were very influential. Also, the baseball coach and football coach were one and the same, and they were 
affiliated with Michigan State, so every every spare weekend I had, they were pushing me down towards Michigan State when uh, Duffy Doherty was there in in, uh, in that era in the '60s. So you get a chance, Larry, of course, to to sign with the Cardinals. The Cardinals at this time, of course, World Series champions in 1964, and you know eventually you make your major league debut with them. Uh, tell us a little bit about the feeling of what it felt like to join an organization like that, a proud organization at the time, probably the best organization in National League history, if you really trace back to the years and the World Series championships and stuff like that. Right, they pretty much leveled with me. You know, they were trying to keep me from going to Michigan State to play football. They pretty much leveled with me. Uh, the time that I signed, I mean, they offered the most bonus then. I mean, the bonuses then were, you know, $40,000 bonus was pretty good at that time, and that's that's what the offer was. But uh, they leveled with me. They didn't have many left-hand pitchers, and, and they were correct. Uh, most of the left-hand pitchers were... You know, maybe Sadeki, I remember, was there, but there weren't many, and and that's the reason I, I chose them. Plus, their offer was a little bit better than everybody else also. Of course. One thing that stands out, you think about the Cardinals and the pitching staff of the 60s, you think right right away of Bob Gibson. You, know, you get a chance to be in the same pitching staff with him. What was what was your experience with Bob, and what did you feel, to, you know, having a guy like that anchor in your staff? Well, he pretty much... Uh, was a guy leading that team, whether it was pitchers, hitters, or whatever. He was the leader of that team, and he was tough on you when you, when you first came up there as a rookie. You know, you had to kind of earn your way before he would would accept you. But once he accepted you, you were you were one of the guys, and he's uh, probably the best competitor that I've ever been around in any sport. Plus, he had the ability uh, in baseball. You know. Plus some basketball, from what I hear. Yeah. Uh, once again, John Kelly here with Larry Jaster. 1965 season comes, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's 65-66, the year you end up leading the National League in strike at, uh, in shutouts. I get out of the doubt, no big deal. But you, you end up leading the league in shutouts. Uh, tell us a little bit about that season, how it felt to be able to to, to just kind of kind of prove yourself a little bit because you'd come up and now you're establishing yourself on this on this well-known pitching staff that's led by Bob Gibson. Right, it was kind of a crazy uh, season in a way. I, leading up to that, I was called up 65, and I, and I had three complete game wins in September and 65, which led into 66, and I pitched some shutouts early, but. Uh, there were a lot of pitchers on the staff they were trying to make moves for trades or older pitchers you know to make room for me so they actually sent me out for a while like six weeks until they made some of these moves and then I came back and uh, you know pitched as well as I've ever pitched probably uh, the shutouts you know were, were all over one team which is crazy and yeah. as you might know and they were in succession so that was another thing that as time goes on, that that record kind of at first it wasn't a big deal to me, but now I'm thinking, hey, that's all of a sudden you're not going to see it. It's still out there, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you figure with all the extra teams, the expansion and stuff, the, the opportunity to face the same team x amount of times, and to throw, you know, obviously to throw a shutout, which is almost becoming obsolete itself with the way the pitchers are being used. You know what I remember most about that was uh, the the five shutouts. Uh, there was 24 hits in those five games, and they were all singles. 
that's the most amazing to me because of the speed that the Dodgers had. Yeah, absolutely. Just no extra base hits during that, during those five games. Now, what is what what is involved in this in the in, the, uh, in regards to the way you're thinking as you're going up, you're having a success. You're you're shutting out the same team, a, a well-known team, a good team. And you seem to have their number. Does anything change game to game in regards to your preparation or the way you, you get ready? All right, I'm starting against this team again. I've shut them out two times in a row. You're going in there, start number three. You're probably not thinking about that, but is there anything that changes in, in regards to your preparation when you start? it starts to come to your brain that you're having you know, this amount of success against the same team? Probably not the first one, the first two, or the first three, but then probably after that you, you start thinking about it just like they're thinking about it, which works to my advantage probably more than uh, against me because uh, they're, they're trying even harder also, and I'm just laying back because t to me it hasn't been that tough. I, I think I'm going to do it again. You yeah. know, my confidence gets more and more and of course they're they seem to be pressing more and more so obviously I wasn't pressing they they were probably pressing more than me yeah no question once again John Pielli here with Larry Jaster in 1967 the World Series you're part of it of course you get a chance to pitch on one of the games what is the one moment that you remember on the field or in the dugout about the 1967 World Series well I, I remember uh how dominant Gibson was, I think, and, and and when I got into the game, it wasn't for very long. It was like uh, I think there was one out. I forget, but and there was a ground ball at Maxville, which would have been a double play, but he loses it in the shirts, so it ends up the base. Yeah, hit. I remember that. Yeah, and then then uh, the next one's the bloop, and and I'm out of there. It was that quick? Although I didn't pitch that bad. Not the next World Series wasn't. Quite so good. I gave up a grand slam in the '68 series to Northrop there, uh, but I hadn't pitched for a while at, at that time. Uh, I probably pitched more consistently in '67 uh, and '68. About halfway through the season, I hurt my shoulder a little bit, so I didn't pitch that well the second half. And I hadn't pitched for a while, you know, when the World Series time came at that in that year of uh, 1968. Yeah, of course, after the 1968 season, you end up getting taken in the expansion draft by the Montreal Expos. First, first opinion that comes to your head when that happens: Were you were you happy about that? Were you not happy about that? Did you expect to be protected by the Cardinals? No, I really didn't expect to be protected because I, I was eight and four at the break, and I finished one and nine. So I, I didn't really expect to be protected because of the way I pitched the second half. Although. Uh, I was disappointed because I was leaving a winning team. Yeah, of course. But uh, you know, I knew I was going to get a good opportunity with Montreal. At least I, I thought I would. But I knew I had the injury also, which wasn't really bothering me pain-wise to throw. But I, I wasn't the same effective pitcher at the second part of '68. So I had uh, apprehensions about. I hope my arm's going to be okay, and you know. Hope I can get this back together like I had done in the past. Yeah, of course, before the 1969 season, there had been professional baseball played in Canada. 1969 comes, of course, the expansion team, the Montreal Expos, are the first Major League Baseball team to play in Canada. As, as you report for spring training that year, 
is 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 there is is there anything different in regards to the way things are set up? Are you guys all aware of the history that's coming to play Major League Baseball in Canada for the first time? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I know all through spring training they were pretty much. I remember Maury Wills and myself were going to different places, uh, you know, just to meet people and meet the owners, you know, and stuff like that. So uh, we were pretty much aware this was this was a big deal. And, and I had a good spring and uh, a good enough spring to be the opening day pitcher in, in New York, but Gene Mott said, I want to give you the privilege of pitching opening day in Montreal. So I said, that's great, you know. I, yeah, and then of course, once once you found that out, you absorbed that right away. And you, were you aware of how how important and how special that was going to be for not only yourself and the Expos, but for Major League Baseball? Yeah, I think so. I knew it'd be the first pitcher to you know throw a pitch in Canada. I think so, but maybe not as much so as it, as it is now when you think back. Just like on other things, initially you don't think as much about it as you do as the years go by. And once again, Lachlan Ciampielli here with Larry Jaster. What, what, what is the Cardinals, the Expos, or the Braves? Is there one roommate that, that you had that comes to your head that you say, like, you know, I'm never going to forget the fact that I roomed with this ball player? Yeah, I, th I think St. Louis, my roommate was Joe Horner, the left-hand reliever, who was killed in a crazy tractor accident uh, later. But... Uh, he he was a good friend, a good good roommate. I, I would think that would be the guy. Although Dal Maxwell and I were pretty close, we still keep in touch. Also, now all, all these years later, of course, you spent many years as a coach. Um, is there is there a player or two that comes to mind that you were able to mentor, or kind of you took under your wing, and then you saw either their success or their chance to have a lot of success in Major League Baseball? Well, I think with the Braves, I was there 10 years, and there were a lot of good pitchers came through there. And most of the time, I would have these pitchers in, in rookie ball or eight ball. That was where I coached. And, and you know, a couple of pitchers I had were uh, Tom Glavin, Steve Avery. I mean, there were a bunch of them. Mark Wollers, uh, Turk Wendell. So I feel like I had a, a slight hand in some of their success, even though it was the in, beginning of their careers, not not at the tail end of their careers. Now going back, you know, of your time, like the question I similarly asked about the three teams you were with, all these years as coaching, there's so many years you spent involved in professional baseball. Is there one moment that comes to your head that you think similarly about how, how, how great it was or maybe something that happened that you'll never forget? Well, as a, from the team standpoint, it, it had to be winning the World Series in 67. From, the, from a personal standpoint, probably the five shutouts in the one season. Yeah. You know, just, and as far as playing against... Being being teammate of some great players, also playing against some great players during that time, you know. Uh, after I left St. Louis, it was uh, Montreal. They had Maury Wills, Rusty Staub, Bill Stoneman, who's a Canadian, by the way. Uh, and then you go to Atlanta. You got Necro. You got Aaron. So it's just playing with and against some great people plus uh, some great teammates.
Hi, Larry. I want to thank you for having some time, and of course, appreciate you letting me in your house, man. Best of luck to you. All right. Thank you, John. So that was Larry Jaster, former Major League pitcher, a left-hander. He never really got a chance to pitch in the Major Leagues as that quote-unquote loogie. Uh, you heard me reference in the first part of the program. But uh, one thing I want to get into before we go, I'm just going to do my last version of my MLB Countdown 30-1 to 1, uh, previews that I do every year. And I'm going to kind of summarize it real quick. Some teams I didn't get a t- chance to touch on on the air. So if you didn't hear me preview your favorite team on the past ball show, just check out johnpiele.com, Bases Empty Block. I got every team set up there. I've been sharing them a lot just to make sure everybody gets a chance to look at my perspective of what I see teams going into this year. And listen, some of them I'm going to be right on, some of them I'm going to be wrong on. So we're going to go division by division here. And I got the American League East, and I'm going with the Boston Red Sox, who had an over-under of 87.5. I got them winning 90 games going 90 and 72 winning the division right behind them i got the new york yankees a game behind 89 and 73 with their over under being 86.5 the tampa bay rays 88.5 is their over under i have them falling a little bit shorter than that at 84 and 78 following that with the baltimore orioles at their over under is 80.5 i have them at 79 and 83 a little bit of a disappointing season in spite of all the talent that they've set themselves up with the Jimenez and the Cruz signings are certainly would, would get the fan base a little energized to think that this team could do a little better than my expectation at 79 and 83. The division is going to be finished off with the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm down on them. I don't think that they did enough in the offseason to back up what they did last offseason. And I, I, I applaud them for the effort last offseason. I thought they did a good job in trying to address as many needs as they possibly could. They, they just don't have enough pitching. Their starting pitching is a little bit weak. Uh, they didn't do anything to really go out there and get that other starter to add to R.A. Dickey and the guys that are up there in our rotation. So I see them finishing at 72 and 90. Moving forward, the AL Central. To me, is that's the division that I'm, I'm going with the surprise pick. I'm not going with the Detroit Tigers. I think the Kansas City Royals are ready to take it this year. I got them. Their over-under is at 81.5. I got them finishing at 88 and 74, and that's first place in the division. Followed by the Detroit Tigers, whose over-under number is 89.5. I got them finishing at 86 and 76. Two games behind, but not enough to win this division. The Chicago White Sox, I think, could do a lot better than they did last year. They're over under 75.5. I got them finishing at 79 and 83, the same record as the Baltimore Orioles. A little bit closer to 500, but much better than a team that lost over 90 games last year. A team that I'm not so high on, and you know, it has nothing to do with the manager, who's done a phenomenal job in his first season, and that's the Cleveland Indians under Terry Francona. That over-under number is a little bit down on them as well for a team that won 90-plus games last year. It's only set at 80.5. I have them finishing at 86-76, and 76, one of the more disappointing teams in all of Major League Baseball based on the expectations. The Minnesota Twins are a team that I was ready to be a little bit more bullish with, thinking that they could do a little bit better. Their over-under number was set up at 70.5, but the injury to Miguel Sano uh, is going to certainly set them back a little bit. Here's a guy that could come in there, play shortstop, end up hitting 30-plus home runs, but he's not going to be able to because he's not going to be there, and that's why the Twins will finish in last place, 67-95 and 95 in the division. Uh, the West, I got the Texas Rangers winning, 8, 95 and 67. Their over-under is 86.5. 
The Angels, I got them finishing right behind them, 87 and 75, with an over-under of 86.5. The Oakland Athletics, I got them being a little bit down this year. I'm not totally down them. I think they could win 84 games. I got them finishing 84 and 78 with over-under of 88.5, in spite of a good offseason. The Seattle Mariners, I think I think a lot of people are sleeping on them, thinking that they could jump it up this year with their starting pitching and with Robinson Cano. I got them finishing at 82 and 80 with an over-under of 81.5. And the Houston Astros at, at 62.5 for their over and under. I think they'll be a little better this year next year i think they're going to see a significant increase in their win total but i got them finishing at 58 and 104 in last place in the al west but you know the american league is set up in my opinion three division winners the red sox the royals and the rangers uh, the two wild card teams are going to be the yankees and the angels and yes teams like the detroit tigers the oakland athletics the tampa bay rays the cleveland indians four teams that all made the playoffs last year will not according to John Pielli, make the playoffs this coming season. The National League, I'm going to do real quick. Uh, my, my three division winners are pretty easy. The Nationals, the Cardinals, the Dodgers. That surprises no one. That will surprise no one if it ends up being the case coming into this season. My two wild card teams may surprise you a little bit. I got the Arizona Diamondbacks, who have an over-under of 80.5. I think they could finish with 88 wins, 88 and 74. I got them getting to the postseason, as well as their division mates, the San Francisco Giants, a team that uh, missed the playoffs last year, but prior to that, won two World Series in three years. I think the veteran leadership on this Giants team, Tim Hudson coming over there, is going to help the pitching staff. I still think they got a lot of carryover from the veterans and some of the younger players like the Posies and the Belts that they have on this team. I think they can go out there, be very competitive, and get themselves a wild card spot. I got them finishing at 86 and 76 with an over under of 80 86.5. So Teams I got missing the playoffs. The Reds, barely. I got them with the same amount of wins as the San Francisco Giants have at 86 and 76. I predict the play-in game. The Giants beating the Reds in a playoff game, just like the Reds lost last year in a wild-card game. Pretty similar to what the Texas Rangers went through a couple of years before that. They lost in a wild-card play-in game the first year to the Baltimore Orioles, and then the next year they were in a play-in game and they lost to the Tampa Bay Rays. So I, I think the Reds will miss out on the playoffs this year. I don't think they have enough strength with their start with their manager, and I think they're just going to digress a little bit, just enough to miss the playoffs. But I got the Braves out of the playoffs I got uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates out of the playoffs two teams that were in last year and like you see on a year in and year out basis things change it's not always the same team and I always say this the team the people that go out there and pick the results in the next season based on what happened a year before end up being wrong most of the time and I went before with my countdowns that I was a little bit more of a risk taker in regards to teams that may not necessarily have it all together at that moment to win. But I think you have to have a balance. You have to have a mixture of what you have in between. A little bit of some surprise teams, a little bit of some veteran teams that have been there before, and a little bit of, of, of teams that you know, for whatever reason, just get it together. Or for whatever reason, a team that you would think was supposed to be very good all of a sudden falls on their face. Like, let's say the Phillies last year, losing as many games as they did. I don't think anybody would anticipate the team being that bad based off what the expectations were coming into the season. Maybe some people didn't have them in the playoffs, but I'm sure a lot of people didn't have them losing as many games as they did last year. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for joining me today. Big thanks to Tim McCarver. Thanks to Dead 
Desi Rutherford. Thanks to Milt Wilcox and Larry Jaster for being part of the program this week. We'll be right back with you next week. Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out my website, johnpele.com, where I got my blog that I'm pretty much writing about something baseball-related, either conventional or historical, every day. And, of course, check out my blog archives as well as my interview archives where I got over 200 interviews with current and former Major League players. See you next week. Rock over London, rock on Chicago, American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago.